With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there. Welcome back to another installment of Gangland Wire. Sure. Host Gary Jenkins, retired intelligence unit officer from the Kansas City Police Department. We're going to go back east to New York City. Uh, Michael Francese. Now, you all know Michael Francese. If you're any kind of a mob fan at all, you you know Michael Francese by now. Uh, he's, he's really good. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I, I think a rising tide floats all boats, and I'm not really trying to make money off of this. Uh, and he's making a whole living off of his and then that's, you know, that's, that's his thing. And so, uh, but, and, and he's good, uh, but he was, but I'm going to tell you about his conversion experience. You know, lots of times, you know, you know about all their mob experiences and, and, uh, you know, he did this and he did that. And his dad was Sonny Franchise and I did a whole show on him, you know, the mob legend in, in New York city. But I want to talk about a little bit about where he came from and his conversion experience. Uh, now, Michael Francese was younger than I am, about uh, six years old, younger than I am. He was born in May of uh, 1951 in the Brooklyn borough, the borough of Brooklyn, New York City, to John Franny, Sonny Francese, uh, who was a Colombo crime family underboss. And his mother was Christina Capo Bianco Francese. Now, there were some rumors that have gone around. If you mess around with this mob stuff much at all, you'll know that that maybe Michael was not the blood child of Sonny Francese. Maybe he was adopted. Uh, most folks agree that that Sonny was married to the mother of his other three children back in 1951. But he had two families, uh, Sonny did, and he was he impregnated a young cigarette girl at the Stork Club in Manhattan, whose name was Christina Capobianco. Now, in order to preserve uh, appearances, shall we say, and to save the girl from any kind of, uh, you know, gossip in the neighborhood and all that, and kind of like, I'm sure in, in their neighborhood, it's kind of like the small town I grew up in. If, if some young girl got pregnant out of wedlock, uh, she either disappeared and came back without a baby or everybody knew that she had a baby. Uh, she marries a guy named Frank Grillo during this time. And, and actually he was, he was raised, Michael, Francese was raised under the name of Michael Grillo when he lived in uh, with that name till he was 18. And he thought that Frank Grillo was his, was his father. But later on in life, and yeah, as a young man, not too many years later, uh, he learned his father was actually John Sonny Francese. And 
the family got together and he ends up marrying this uh Capo Bianco and they have a whole nother family and and uh, Michael will say that he first noticed that his father was different. He noticed that there was a huge police presence around uh, their home and around his father. Now, uh, and I heard him say that back in those days, and I'll testify to this, uh, I was kind of there during the change. Uh, they used to just follow mob guys around lockstep. They didn't try to get sneaky. They were just on top of them all the time. And then we started changing when they started using wiretaps and hidden microphones. You started getting sneakier and you started to let them go and, and make them think that there wasn't any mayor around. As a matter of fact, we were on a surveillance and, and we found out later there was a uh, mob guy I called another mob guy. And he said, well, there, is there any cops or agents around? He said, no, I don't see any. <laughs> and the mob guys it was Corky Savella, who it was, the brother of our boss. He said, well, if you don't see them, then they're there which was pretty much true. So he knew he learned that his dad was in the mob. And of course, his friends, when he went to high school, they already kind of knew that this was his dad. You know, I don't know the exact breakdown of when when that news was broken to him, but I got a feeling that he knew it even in high school because it's probably an open secret. Uh, his friends in high school knew it. His, his friends, as he, as he got out of high school, knew it. And, and he said that some people hold him, held him up to high esteem because he was the son of this famous Sonny Franchise mobster who was like the uh, the prince of the city, if you will. He, he had his own table at the uh, Copacabana and, and everybody knew Sonny Franchise. Some people made fun of him and, and uh, disdained him because he was a son of a mobster. But Michael was a serious student. He was smart. And if you ever watch his show today, you can see this guy is smart. Very, uh, I don't know if glib may not be kind of a derogatory word, but he's really smooth in his delivery. He, a guy could talk. He enrolled in a pre-med program in college in Hofstra University. I'm not sure where that is. And I didn't look it up. He was a good athlete. Uh, and he really had no plans to take up a life of crime. But in 1967, Sonny Francese was sentenced to 50 years in penitentiary for a large bank robbery conspiracy. And uh, son Michael will later say that, uh, you know, when you get in the dope business, if you uh, dope people are going to testify against you. And, and he said his father, every one of these bank robbers, he was he was suspicious that his father was really in charge of this big bank robbery conspiracy because he said all the people that testified against him were uh, dope addicts, which is is true. I mean, you take a dope addict, you can turn a dope addict in, in no time. Uh, his father had been a member of the Colombo organization. And during this time when his father's going away to the penitentiary in the, the late 60s, uh, early 70s, he gets involved. Michael himself gets involved with Joe Colombo and the American Italian American Civil Rights Organization. Matter of fact, he was there that day that uh, Colombo was killed, just uh, not too far away. He was out handing out leaflets for Colombo, an 18-year-old kid out hanging out, hanging, handing out leaflets uh, for Joe Colombo. And his father's in penitentiary. Matter of fact, back here uh, close to Kansas City, he's, uh, he's in Leavenworth and makes a trip back and he tells his father, I'm going to drop out of school because we got to earn money for the family. And his father said, well, you know, if you're going to do that, you got, <laughs> you need to earn some decent money. If you're committed to doing this, you're not going to go and go to college. Uh, you're going to have to do this the right way. So he sent a message back to the Colombo family that they need to take in Michael. 
He ends up being connected up. Joe Colombo's dead, and and a, a guy named Tommy DiBella is the acting boss of the Colombo family. Uh, for the man who we actually become the boss, uh, Carmine Persico was in jail at the at that time. So Tommy DiBella takes him in, and and he has a, a, a crew of associates pretty quickly working for him because again, if you watch him on his YouTube channel, he is he is a he is a leader. He's a natural born leader. Guys just want him to like them. They want to do stuff for him and get his approval. I can tell you that. I've known a lot of guys like that in police departments, and, and he is a natural-born leader. And Low Shark Money, within a couple, three years, he's uh, he's inducted, inducted in. He takes, does a ceremony, you know, the prick in the finger, the burn of the card. Uh, he'll say that all the rest of those guys are dead or in prison. I think they're all dead that he was inducted with. I, I don't even remember their names now, but, but he is a successful business guy. He mainly is involved in loan shark business, which when you're in loan shark business and you get people that can't really pay back the money or having trouble and you move in and, and help run their business with them and start, you know, whether you bust it out to get all the money you can, or, or it looks successful and you help make it successful, uh, you know, he, he's doing well. He has a, a crew. He's making money. He's kicking up, of course. He knows the game. And, and that's when he gets into gasoline bootlegging. He, this, this was a deal that, that made him famous. He finds a guy. He's a great big fat guy. This was Lawrence Iarizzo at his desk seven years ago running a big East Coast gasoline business, a business he now says he ran for the mob. This was Iarizzo a few years later, under arrest. In 1981, Michael Francese sets up 18 stock bearer companies like, you know, like little corporations based in Panama. And he had entered into a deal with this other guy with some Russians who had a chain of independent gas stations. So the Russian mob was involved with this. He had the wholesale companies. He would buy the gasoline from the, the big companies are bringing them over on tank, bringing it over on tankers or bringing the oil over and then refining it over here down South or whatever. And, and he was buying, you know, tractor trailer tanker fulls of full tankers full of gasoline and then going out and filling up these gas stations. These wholesalers are the ones who are responsible for the tax. The, the gas station people were charging the tax as up to 40 cents a gallon, uh, depending on what jurisdiction they were in. And they would pay that into the wholesale companies, but they didn't pay the uh, government their tax. And then when the government starts noticing they're not getting this tax money from this company, they just don't file their, you know, the returns or forms, whatever it is. Then when they start investigating, start looking at them, they just declare bankruptcy of one of these 18 companies, fire up the other one and start them in it. And you, of course, you had the Russians who were running the independent gas stations uh, were going along with the business. And, and, you know, what's interesting is they were even like helping people. They were charged a little less for gas. So they, so they would be more competitive than uh, uh, the other gas stations. And, and soon they, he was earning millions and millions of dollars. He bought several expensive homes. He bought other businesses. He only he started a film company, started making movies, got a B movies, um, movie business will eventually lead him out of this life of crime and into Christianity, believe it or not. So now we get into, to get, start getting more into his, uh, uh, born again experience, shall we say, uh, 
1986, kind of gives a time frame, uh, Fortune magazine listed Michael Francese as number 18 on its list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses. Vanity Fair said he was the biggest money earner for the mob since Al Capone. They called him the yuppie Don during the 1980s. Uh, he, he was flying high. He had it all. Uh, he had a whole lot of different businesses. He had several car dealerships, leasing company, uh, auto repair shops, restaurants, nightclubs, uh, contracting company, besides his movie business, travel agencies, video stores were big, still big back then. Uh, uh, his, his film production company that I said was going to lead him out of the mob life and into uh, Christianity and in life he has today was the name of it was Miami Gold. They produced a one movie they produced that got a little bit of a play. It was in 1986 called Knights of the City. Uh, now, that is, uh, if you go to YouTube, you can find that. And I'll put a link down below to find and watch Knights of the City. I watched a little bit of it. Uh, for me, it was basically unwatchable. It's about a, a rap group that's trying to make it big in the city. Eight million dollars a week. Eight million a week. Yes. It's no longer limited to four states. Iarizzo says massive gasoline tax evasion has spread to at least 14. Some authorities estimate the loss in federal taxes at a billion dollars a year. 1985, the feds turned a guy named Lawrence Iarizzo. Great big fat guy, weighed about 400 pounds, was, was really glib, was really smart, was just a born con man and... Uh, when they, he turns them, he implicates Francese in this multi-state gasoline tax rack because it's expanded from New York to Florida to Texas to, uh, I think, maybe California, a couple of states out west. And so it's, it's rolling. And with this guy talking, in the end, Francese pleads guilty to one count of racketeering conspiracy and one count of tax conspiracies in late night or no early 1986. This all started in 85. And by 86, uh, he pleads guilty. He gets a 10 year sentence. They ordered him to pay $14.7 million in restitution. And he has to sell all his assets, all of his houses and everything and uh, anything he can't hide. And he also devotes the uh, proceeds he's ordered to to earmark any proceeds from this Knights of the City film. They didn't make much money. Uh, it goes into the penitentiary. He's got this going. He's got a 10 year sentence and, and he needs to get out. Well, there's another case that that he was involved in and the feds have made a case against a couple of Peckerwoods. So he doesn't mind testifying against these guys. A couple of sports agents named uh, Norby Walters and Lloyd Bloom. And they subpoenaed Michael to testify about how he allowed them to use his name as an extortion tool to frighten athletes into signing management contracts. You know, something like, hey, uh, you know, you don't want to sign this contract. Uh, I'll just have your legs broken. You know who I know. Uh, and, and then he allows himself to use the name Francese or, you know, they've been seen with him or whatever. But th that's how it works. They just uh, by innuendo. Uh, I know in Chicago, the once uh, collectors are going around saying, well, you know, you don't, you don't want Harry Aleman to come around and collect this day or Frank, the German Swiss. You don't want one of them to come around and collect this. And so 
he was part of it. I mean, they probably could have charged him with it more than likely if one of those guys that had testified that there was, and that he allowed that and he was getting any money out of the deal, which I'm sure he was getting money out of it. He was given immunity. He testified. They got their convictions. Right after that, Michael gets out on probation. It's 1991. And uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office brings charges of probation violation against Francese, and he's sent back to the penitentiary. Uh, so uh, all he had given up is a couple of, of Pecker Woods. And, and actually, at the time, the, the U.S. Attorney, he had intimated the U.S. Attorney was expecting him to give up something about somebody in La Cosa Nostra. And he wasn't doing it. As a matter of fact, the U.S. attorney, when when they were violating his probation, said he gave us nothing of value about anyone in Costa Nostra. Uh, we essentially view him as a con man. So so now he's back in the penitentiary. Now we got to his conversion experience. Uh, kind of a short way to get around to a little bit about his life and how he got to where he was. Now, you remember that movie he produced, Knights of the City? Um, all unknowns except Smokey Robinson, who had a cameo. And there's a woman named Janine Turner who had a part. Of, you may or may not remember this. She was a female lead in a movie called Cliffhanger about mountain climbers. And, and those that movie's proceeds were to be directed toward his restitution. There was a 19-year-old dancer in that movie named Camille Garcia that caught Michael's eye. They ended up getting married and and Camille and her mother were both born again Christians. Of course, you got married born again Christian. I don't know how many of you guys ever had. I was I was once married to a woman that, that became a born again Christian. They start working on you big time. They worked on the work time, but he just kept resisting and he didn't, you know, he didn't want anything to do with this. But his life wasn't going so well again. And in, in the end, they weren't making much money. He was hiding out. Uh, the mob had decided that he needed to be eliminated because he knew too much. He's already started talking against these Peckerwoods. Um, so a higher power ended up stepping in and, on this deal. Now, those higher power things, uh, they don't work just directly, indirectly in my work. Government violates his probation again. Uh, he's got this contract out on his life. 1991, he's in solitary confinement for his own safety back in penitentiary. He's looking at least three years. They put him in solitary confinement, partly supposedly to keep him from getting killed, but also it softens a guy up. And uh, we used to say, make somebody spend a night on the iron. They, they're a little more amenable to talking the next day, even if it's just one night. They want him to talk about mob secrets. Now, what happens next is one of those unexplainable miracles. I'm going to tell you about another one here in a little bit. In his own words, uh, look these up. He said, I was at my lowest level in my life. I was in a six foot by eight cell and I was afraid I was losing everything, everything dear to me. My wife, she already had waited three years for me. It was in 13 months. He was back out had been horrible because he had to lay low. Uh, there was a contract on him. He wasn't able to make much money. Um, things were not going well with the, the, the new wife, and he, he really liked her. They had two children by then. She was 21 and when he first married her, and now she's 27. And he, and he said to himself, he said, uh, I said to myself, I'm going to lose the girl that I did all this for. He felt like he was just going to die in that small, dirty cell sometime in the next few years. He didn't know when. He didn't see any way out. He didn't even see getting back out in the general population. And if he did, that, he might die there too. 
there's a prison guard passing by. And I don't know if we is he, if he's ever figured out that guy's name. If anybody has, it'd be interesting to know who that guy's name is. Uh, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, if any of you guys know who it is, why throw it in, throw it out in the comments of YouTube or somehow get hold of me. Tell me, you know what it is. Tell me what it is. I'll look the guy up, try to interview him. Uh, the guy noticed he was depressed and Michael, you okay. And he was like, you know, yeah, get out of here. Guy left, came right back and he, and he took a Bible and he stuck it through the, uh, you know, the, where you stick the food through in those uh, solitary confinement cells. He put the Bible in there. Michael says he picked the Bible up and a fit of rage threw it up against the wall. And and when his rage and frustration all just boiled up at this point, and and there's that book that he didn't really do anything to, you know, it's just laying there. It's still laying there like a, as we say, a turd in a punch bowl. It probably just got bigger and bigger. He said, I, he said, I looked up at the ceiling. I even said a short prayer. He said, you know, I was raised in church and I know about praying. I raised, I, I mouthed a short prayer that asked for anything to make me feel better, to give me some hope. And he said he admitted to himself and, and uh, you know, up to the ceiling, you know, if we pray, if we all done foxhole prayers, I would imagine we always look up. You ever notice that? And, and, and he said, I admitted to myself I had no answers, absolutely no answers whatsoever. I could not make myself feel better. I was unable to handle this situation. And he said, I looked back down at that Bible, and he said, I opened it up and started reading. And the Bible just opened to the book of Proverbs. He said, I didn't know as a Catholic, I didn't know anything about the Bible. Uh, I've noticed Catholics, if you say anything about the Old Testament, you guys that are Catholic out there, you don't know much about it because if you're, if you're raised in a Protestant church like I was, you read all those Old Testament stories. Uh, Catholics don't. They only read the catechism, only deal with the New Testament. If anything's read out of the Bible, the priest reads it, right? So he starts reading Proverbs, and there's something about Proverbs. And I have I had my own little experience one time. I was uh, married to this woman who was a uh, born-again Christian, and I had led pretty dis- dissolute life before, not not quite to the same as Michael Francis' age, just a lot of drinking and whoring around. And and I was in a hotel room by myself, and, and I was feeling bad, and, and uh, some TV preacher came on, and, and he was reading something from the Bible, and it just hit me like, oh, man. And, and, I, and I, I really felt this stirring inside of me. And, and it really started changing around for me after that. And really slowly, much like Michael. But uh, started asking his wife after he started reading this Bible. And he asked his wife to bring him other books on all the religions, you know, Islam and Hindu. And, and he, he had this, he was on this spiritual quest. He knew there was something greater than himself that he had to cling to. And he had this this thirst and this desire to go find it. And, and by the end of the three years, he had three years he had to do, and they kept him in solitary confinement this entire time. He says that he accepted God was real in his life, that the Bible contained the word of God and that Jesus was his risen savior. Most of y'all know when he came back out of the penitentiary, he, since then, and I remember this back in those days, I kind of, I've gotten away from a lot of this now. I think it really kept with me is I don't drink anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I remember, I think I went to one of his talks uh, back then. I, I can't remember exactly. This would, for me, would have been the uh, uh, late 80s. And, and that would have been about the time he started giving these talks. There was some mob guy that gave a talk at a born again church uh, here in Kansas City. 
uh, he started giving the testimony of his past life and, and his conversion experience. And that, that's what uh, born again Christians, you know, like to, to show that conversion experience. And since then, I mean, he's worked his, he's a, such a good speaker and he's so positive and, and he can really reach out and touch people and connect with people in a, in a crowd or even, you know, through a YouTube channel. And he's worked his way into the corporate world as an inspirational speaker, as well as churches. And, and he continues to do that. He has a really popular YouTube channel. Uh, and it really is a YouTube channel. He has a ton of downloads. And, and boy, when he did that little deal of sit down with Sammy the Bull, I wonder which one of them is going to put a contract down on the other. Huh? <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. They, they had that little sit down and, and acted like they had a big argument. I don't know if I really believe that their, their hearts were in that argument, but it makes for good, uh, uh, makes for gets you a lot of attention. Uh, I've watched several videos of his show and his early videos when he just created early videos for his Christian audience. And you know, I'll tell you what, in my opinion, he seems like a genuinely a good guy, a good man, a changed person from what I'm sure he was before, but he is also a very talented speaker and a smooth talker. So uh, I, I say, trust God, but tie your camel. And that, that's what I do. Well, I wouldn't go into business with him. Uh, I, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I've talked to other mob guys about, some of these conversion experiences. I know Bobby Luise's got one. I couldn't really find exactly what his was. And, but I, I have direct experience with one guy who's a little known guy. You never heard of him. But let me tell you this story about a conversion experience. Uh, I happened to find him not long after he surfaced. Now, Ernie Davino, well, he was, uh, if you really follow mob stuff all over the United States, then there's a guy named Frank Culotta that had a gang of burglars called the Hole in the Wall Gang. And, and Frank Culotta was, before he died, about a year ago, died of COVID sometime in the last year, year and a half. Uh, he was all over the internet and had his YouTube channel, was pretty popular. Uh, he gave mob tours in Las Vegas and, and his gang, he worked directly under uh Tony Splatro from, from uh, Chicago and uh, helped Tony do everything that Tony was supposed to do for Chicago out in uh, Las Vegas. Anyhow, there was a guy in that gang named Ernie DeVino and I had to find him. He had, his son had, had filmed him just tell a little bit about his life story and put it on YouTube. And I don't know how I found it. I think I just started searching around for some of the members of the uh, hole in the wall gang to see if I could find where they were and if I could interview any of them. So I found this Ernie DeVino and I ended up getting in touch with him and did a little research on him and talked to him on the phone two or three times. A really nice guy. Uh, he was born into a mob family in uh, New Jersey. His father was a guy called Tubby DeVino. If you, Google Tubby DeVino, you'll find out just a little bit. It's kind of a minor guy in the Anastasia family. He was an enforcer. And Ernie told me, he said, my dad owned a bar. And he said he had a reputation that he could knock out any man with one blow. So you can imagine how Ernie was raised. But he did. He, he really regretted he didn't have much relationship with his father. Uh, kind of like Michael Francis, didn't have much relationship with his father. He's, you know, in prison. He's over in New York you know, styling and profiling at the joints at night. Uh, Duff, uh, uh, Francis's father went to many of his games in high school. Uh, Ernie, they said that's one thing he regretted. He was a pretty good athlete, and he said his father never paid any attention to that or came to any of my games. He said, I've always regretted that. I wish that could have been different. He'd gone out to Las Vegas in the 70s as a young man, became part of Splatro's Hole in the Wall gang, and when the whole gang got busted, Ernie DeVino never talked. 
uh, Frank Culotta, he sang like a canary man. He's putting everybody in the trick bag, but uh, Ernie DeVito never talked. He's pretty resentful of Frank Culotta. I know for that. He still had the code. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And uh, he said when he was in prison in Nevada for that burglary, another thing, he even testified at Tony Splatro's trial and, and testified that Tony Splatro was not the boss of this gang and never got any, had any, didn't have any part in planning these scores, especially the one that got caught on or that got any of the booty from these scores. Uh, kind of told a little lie or two there, I got a feeling. But uh, he, he was this real stand-up guy. Uh, but... He, when he goes in the penitentiary, he, he's assigned a bunk at a large dormitory of bunks, you know, over prison, overcrowded. You may have seen those images they've got. They take a, a, an old gym in an older prison and just fill it with bunk beds, you know, two or three high and about six feet apart. If even that, I mean, you just don't have any privacy whatsoever. So he's assigned a bunk. And there's a guy on the bunk above him. And so when he goes to sit down in his bunk, he noticed a, a rosary hanging from one of the bedsteads. Uh, he asked the guy in the upper bunk, he said, was this yours? He said, no. He said, I guess the guy that just left took it or left it. Uh, Ernie said he just kept looking at the rosary. He was so dead serious about this. He said, I just kept looking at it, kept looking at it. He said, like it was talking to me. And he said, finally, he said, he took it down and, and he started saying the rosary. And, and then he, he felt this change in him when he first, during the time he was in prison, when he got out, he said, I went right back to the life. He said, I found a woman, we we're doing drugs and, and I was starting to do scores again. He said, but I, it just was not the same. And I ended up leaving her and, and became a committed Christian. And, and when I talked to him, he was doing volunteer work and I was trying to help him get lined up. I have fixed him up with some people doing a documentary about the uh, Las Vegas thing that never came to fruition. They were going to interview me. And I said, Hey, you need to interview this guy. Uh, he's got, you know, different voice. And, and I tried another guy was trying to do stories about professional criminals and, uh, I, I, I connected them up, but his story, his, his whole, uh, TV show never really happened. And Ernie ended up do, dying. I, I think maybe it was COVID around the time Frank, uh, died. I'm not sure exactly. Sometime in the last few years, I started looking for him again. I, I found out, figured out online that it died. So, you know, we've all heard conversion stories and, and there's a, there's a common denominator to them. It's always that there's some pain in their life. They, people, a, a guy or a gal will run across some symbol of Christianity, whether it be a rosary, a cross, a Bible, whatever. And, and they'll have this kind of physical shift in their life. And, and from then on, it's like you can't ever go back again. Uh, and, and they will end up leading a straight, totally straight life and leave that criminal life or whatever their, you know, kind of immoral life things that they were doing before that they were ashamed of. And, and Michael uh, Francese had exactly that, uh, a run of the mill, if you will, 
Christian conversion experience. Uh, he's not the only guy. A lot of people have had that experience. And, you know, uh, my hat's off to Francis. He's, uh, he's done well with his life. I, I think it's all honest. Like I said, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go into business with any former mob guy. I even thought about trying to, to pay a guy to come on the show and, and offer him, you know, if I got a certain amount, he was a kind of a big time guy. If he got a certain amount of hits that I would pay him a certain amount of money. I was talking to a friend of mine about, it. he said, you don't want to do business with that guy. He said, and he's right. Uh, I'm sorry, guys out there. I'm sure you're all, you know, squared away and, and okay, but, but I don't want to do business with you. And, and that, that'll just be, uh, uh, you don't need to do business with me. Anyhow, I'm not really doing business. I'm just having fun doing this. So, so I appreciate it. And I always wanted to talk about this uh, kind of a little known facet of uh, one of the biggest mom YouTube podcasting personalities is out there. Uh, talked about the plot to kill Sammy uh, Gravano not too long ago. And so I'm going to continue to look up some of these guys, uh, the little known stories about them. We all know the the main stories, but I like these little known stories. So I want to thanks to give thanks to uh, NBC and Mob Facts for that video. If you've seen a little bit of that video or the audio, it'd be thanks to, to NBC that I'm playing in this. And uh, guys, I, I really appreciate you listening to me. Be sure and uh, comment. I like to see your comments on my YouTube channel, or you can comment on my website underneath the uh, where I post the show notes. If you go to my website. I've got all kinds of ways to give me money. If you want to do that, want to help support the podcast, I try to do a uh, uh, a, a private video call, a Zoom call with a bunch of guys that have given me money in the past. And I haven't done that one for a while, but I'm going to get back around to it. I try to do them once a month, especially if I get a guest. Uh, uh, I've had a few guests on that I don't want to put on the show. They don't, what they have to say doesn't really want to be in. They don't want it in the public. Or one guy he did kind of want it in the public, but I talked to him after and he said, no, you're right. I don't, I don't really need to stir that uh, hornet's nest. Uh, so thanks a lot, guys. And if you, uh, uh, so don't forget, look out for motorcycles. And if you have any problems with PTSD, they've got a pretty good website on the, uh, VA website and they have a hotline. So thanks a lot, guys.